Well, good morning, everybody. Happy to see you all. Uh, I haven't met you. I'm Cameron, one of the pastors here. Uh, Here we are in Nehemiah chapter 10, just uh, getting towards the end now. That means that we've been in Nehemiah approximately 10 weeks. And so uh, quite a lot of time as we've seen this story unfold and uh, just seeing uh, the life that God is bringing back to his people as the, they are continue to be rebuilt along with the city of Jerusalem. Uh, as I was thinking about this passage this week, I was really uh, just thinking about just the way that this kind of worked its way out into how it impacted the lives and the culture of this people. And I thought of a really uh, stupid thing that it brought to my mind, and maybe uh, this is something that you can identify, maybe not. Did anybody, when they were at school, do something like an egg drop challenge or building a bridge with toothpicks, something like that? Okay, well, if you know me, you know that, just think about me, think about how weirdly into that I could get, and you got it, that's exactly right. Uh, I had this, uh, had this uh, just kind of like new wave come over me uh, when I was probably in about the 10th grade or something like that, we did this uh, egg drop challenge where it was pass-fail, you either got 100 on the assignment or a zero, and what we were going to do is we were going to climb up on like, it was kind of like an atrium area, so it's probably 25 feet up in the air under this ledge, and everybody was going to gather around, and the point is that you had to build some kind of vessel Uh, some kind of structure that was going to keep that egg from cracking when it hit the ground. And me being weirdly into that, like I'm weirdly into a lot of things, was like, it's showtime. Like, I will do this 80 times better than everybody else. It's going to be awesome. So not only was I committed to not letting my egg crack, but I was going to do the lightest thing because there was like a weight limit. I'm going to do the lightest thing that I can think of. It's going to be creative. And so I went and bought these like massive, uh, like like big massive, uh, uh, what do they call it? like the air things that the air pockets go into, uh, bubble wrap. But it wasn't like normal bubble wrap, it was like big bubble wrap. So it didn't weigh very much and it was really big and built this like like fabric thing around it as well. And so it was this little tiny thing and I was just so confident that it would work. And it did, right? And I was just so eager because I had gone up to the school. My dad at the time was a school resource officer. I had tested it. I knew it was going to work. And everybody I got there and they were like, that's way too small. There's not enough padding. There's not enough cushioning. You don't even have a parachute, dude. And I was like, it's going to work. And it did. And I was thinking about that because it, it, for whatever reason, it bubbled to the surface in my mind of a time where I was just so radically committed to something and so eager to see the fruit of my commitment. I know it's silly and arbitrary, uh, but I think that things like that rehearse an important lesson in truth that we know uh, really about all things, whether you are a disciplined athlete or a creative of some sort, uh, maybe in your work or in your family life or what have you, you know that you don't just happen into success, expertise, and achievements. I think intuitively we know that in every facet of our life, we ultimately experience the fruit of our commitment. And I think that this is a principle that we can see at work in the history of God's people. You see, before the exile, the commitment of God's people had begun to falter. They had chased after lesser gods, become an idolatrous, wicked people. Their commitment slowly waned and their heart's affection grew cold for the Lord. And the result of that was a very real spiritual, moral, ethical decay and rot that set in among them. And we know that 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 rebellion was the reason for the exile in the first place. And I think what we see in chapter 10 is evidence that God used the exile to remind his people of this important truth. That it is our commitment that determines whether we will flourish 
or be fruitless. It's our commitment that determines whether we will flourish or be fruitless. So that's what I want us to unpack here this morning in Nehemiah chapter 10. First, let's look at this commitment through this covenant that they make in the first 29 verses here. And so as soon as God's people were given the opportunity to return to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding the city, they were, as we see, determined to do things differently. So in chapters 1 through 6, we see the story of the walls being rebuilt, rebuilt even though they encounter resistance, they press on ahead, and we see that by the time chapter 7 and 8, it kind of concludes that the walls in the city are mostly rebuilt, they're beginning to move people back, and there's life again once more. And so what they do is they begin to focus on this kind of interior building project. Right? They begin to recenter their lives on God's word. They ask Ezra to bring out the scroll of the law and begin reading it in the public places in chapter 8. And what we see is that as God's people recenter their lives on his word, as it becomes primary, they begin to major on this truth for their lives. In chapter 9, the result is that there is this outbreak of revival of prayer and repentance. And so in chapter 10, Seeing the good work in the fruit of their commitment or recommitment to God, they want to make this commitment formal. And so it says that they wanted to forge a firm covenant together, basically agreeing to order their lives and communities to walk in the way of God. You see, during the exile, before and during, God's people were plagued with all kinds of issues, socially, religiously, morally, ethically, And that's why it was important for them as they were rebuilding as a people to root their lives firmly in the way of God, to make this covenant commitment to walking in his ways, to living the life that he has called them to live. And so we see this great reversal result in this idea that, hey, we need to write these things down. We need to codify this thing into law. And so they create this charter of sorts as they write this down outlining what a life committed to God might look like. And it says that it was stamped with the seals, which is basically a signature. I wish we had seals. I have those in Japan. It's just like you got a personalized seal, stamp it on a document. We need some of those. Somebody look into that. But they have it stamped with these seals or signatures of all of their leaders. It says in chapter 9, verse 38, it says the princes, the priests, and the Levites. And, and it starts off with Nehemiah and Zedekiah, which is kind of an interesting way, uh, probably in your translation of the Bible, uh, the conjunction and is left off. But it's the only conjunction and between all of the other names in the list. And so clearly there's some kind of intentionality to putting the names of Nehemiah and Zedekiah together at the top of this list. And what most people suggest, what most scholars suggest, is that this was a way of kind of carving out Nehemiah and Zedekiah as a form of maybe civil government for the people. So there was Nehemiah and Zedekiah, and then beneath them were the 21 names of the priests, and then beneath them in verse 14 were representatives from each family. Right? We saw that same idea in chapter 8, that when the law was brought out to be read, all of these heads of households came uh, to study it again the next morning so that they could go back and teach the law and act accordingly in their homes and in their families. And I think the point to see, right, this is our 
fifth list of names. I think a long fifth list of, list of names or places uh, that we see in Nehemiah. The point of these lists is different from time to time. And I think the point of this one is to demonstrate to us once more that this commitment or recommitment to God was being worked into every facet of life all the way from their government that they are creating to enact these laws and enact this way of life, down to the religious life in the temple with the priests, and then down to each individual family. So what was this commitment? On verses 28 through 29, it says that all of these leaders and anyone who was able to understand, right, that same language we saw in chapter 8, it's like men, women, children, whoever you are, you got to come here. you got to listen. We have to do these things. Anyone who was able to understand, it says this, that they entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. So what does that mean? Well, it gives us some explanation. It says that is to observe and do his commandments. So what does this language mean? That all these people would come together, we think about our own context. What does it mean to enter into a curse and an oath together? Well, I think this language of a curse and an oath resembles what is the nature of a covenant. And specifically, it resembles God's covenant with them. Now, you may be familiar with the word covenant, and you might not be. Uh, that, is a, that is language that we don't really use a lot. Uh, maybe we use it to describe marriage or something like that. But outside of that, we don't really talk about uh, the concept of a covenant very much. So maybe it's an idea that we aren't super familiar with. But understand that in the ancient Near East, the covenant relationship was critical to the social, uh, religious, legal, political life of the people in many different cultures and many different places across time. And if I had to just take a stab at what a covenant is, here's how I would describe it. It's a binding relationship with certain parameters and certain promises. A binding relationship with certain parameters and certain promises. Now, there's all kinds of covenants in the Bible. Uh, maybe the one that, like I said, we know most commonly today is marriage. And I think that's a really good example to illustrate how a covenant is not just like a contract. You see, in marriage, hopefully... You didn't enter into a contract with your spouse, but a loving commitment to one another, bound together by faithfulness. There's parameters, and there's a purpose as well. There's a promise, right? You are building a life together. Throughout the Bible, we see all kinds of covenants. Uh, there's personal, social covenants, such as between David and Jonathan. Uh, we see even political covenants, uh, such as between King Solomon and King Hiram. So we see examples like this all across Scripture. But most importantly is this, is that God defines his relationship with his people on the basis of covenant. God defines his relationship with his people on the basis of covenant. Deuteronomy 27 describes this about the nature of this covenant. That keeping this covenant, this covenant relationship with God, this agreement with certain parameters and promises. Deuteronomy 27 says that keeping the covenant results in blessing, and conversely, breaking it results in curse. So what, does ling- what does that language mean? Well, a blessing is to experience flourishing in the good life, walking in the way of God. And to experience the curse is to experience the ruin of sin and the degradation of life itself. And here's why that matters. Here's why that concept of a covenant matters for this language and matters for this commitment that God's people are making here. 
And it's very simple. That's a long explanation for a very simple principle, and that's this. That these people recognize that there is a way of life that leads to flourishing, to observe and do his commandments, and there is a way of life that leads to fruitlessness. Now, fresh on all of their minds was what this way of life that led to fruitful, fruitlessness was, right? That was life of their ancestors before and during the exile. And what they want to recover among themselves and really commit themselves here to with this charter among them is to commit themselves to the way of life that leads to flourishing, that leads to life, that leads to goodness, to uphold the covenant, to keep the covenant of God. They're not creating something new. They're not creating something separate. They're committing themselves to walking in the way that God has called them to, committing themselves to keeping the parameters of the covenant that God has already defined. So again, this isn't the creation of something new. It's the recovery of something that has always been among this covenant people. And I think an important truth, this is kind of extra, but just to tack on here, And I think to see about the commands of God. And when we think about Ezra coming back and reading the law of God, if you can imagine just standing somewhere for like 10 hours at a time and just hearing somebody read the Constitution, you'd be like, can we wrap this up? Like, this is getting a little old, right? And you think about Ezra just opening the scroll and he's like, all right, finish that one, bring me the next scroll. And they just keep reading the law of God over and over and over again. And and I think in our minds, sometimes the word law is kind of a bad word. And we think this is just a bunch of rigid moral code that's bad, that's hard to keep. This is a bunch of expectations for me or my life that come with consequences. And while that may be true, I think something that's important to see embedded in the law, which is an aspect of God's covenant relationship with his people, is this, that God's commands are not arbitrary. God's commands, his law, is not arbitrary. You see, if we commit ourselves to living in the way of God, it will result in spiritual flourishing. Committing ourselves to walking in the way of God, committing our lives to following after him, is not just some cold legalism that we are expected to master over time so that we can follow all the rules and avoid all of the punishments, but rather it is a decision that we make to pursue the way that leads to life by his grace and by the Spirit. And so in verses 30 through 39, we see that the warning of the curse is fresh on the minds of the people. And so they begin to think of what are all of the ways that we have seen this law of God and forsaken it, right? What are all the ways that we knew the covenant parameters and expectations, the way that we were supposed to relate to God and failed? What were all of those things? And so they begin to make this tailored commitment to their community to address these things and to pursue spiritual flourishing instead. They labored to acknowledge where they had fallen short, where they had forsaken God's covenant and wanted to make corrective action in this commitment. Now, here's the thing I think we're going to understand. And we're going to spend the rest of our time kind of looking at what is in these aspects of this commitment. Uh, But I think something to understand is this this isn't a comprehensive list uh, describing everything about the law. Right? So this commitment, again, isn't just a recapitulation of everything that is in the law, and it isn't something new either, but, but understand that this is not a comprehensive list, but a representative one. It's representative of where this people had faltered, where this people had fallen short and needed to grow in their faithfulness to God. 
And so we can look at a few aspects of their commitment to glean how we might also grow in our commitment to God. So I want to look at a few aspects of their covenant commitment together. Uh, First in verses 30 through 31, I'm going to sum it up this way and then describe the parts of it. In verses 30 through 31, I think what we see is a commitment to holiness. A commitment to holiness. Now, I'm summing up two key issues that are addressed right here. Uh, One is that they committed themselves that we are not going to intermarry with the people of the lands, and we're not going to take their daughters for our sons or give their sons to their daughters. We are not going to intermarry with the people of the lands. Now, doubtless, that brings up a lot of things in your mind going, does that mean? We'll get to that in a second. But that was one issue. And the second was keeping the Sabbath according to the law, and that included the seventh Sabbath year. So observing the festivals that the law commanded them to do. So why are these things the priorities, right? If I asked you right now, hey, I want you to make a commitment to holiness in your life, chances are you'd probably think of some sin that you're struggling with, right? some temptation that has been present in your life for a long time, you probably aren't thinking like, I just need to make sure I don't marry a pagan, right? Like that's probably not like in your purview. So why are these the things that seem to be present here? Well, I think verse 28 contains an important idea, a principle that was lost among this people. And that's this, that God's people are meant to be set apart from the world around them. God's people are meant to be set apart from the world around them. That's what holiness means. It is a set apartness. They are to maintain the beliefs and practices of the way of God, the way of his law, even when the world around them is not. So understand that while these issues might not be relevant to you, they were relevant to them. While they might not be the pervasive sin issues or patterns of disobedience in your life, they were the patterns of disobedience among this people. For them being able to look at this issue of intermarriage with the pagan world around them and being able to look at forsaking the Sabbath was to look inwardly at their hearts and around them at their lives and the way that their community was structured and to say, I have forsaken this way of God's law he has called me to, right? Understand that it was important for them. These are areas where they had given into the way of the world and become infiltrated by godlessness. But at the same time, even though they might not be things that are present for us or issues that we walk through, understand that, again, these commands of God are not arbitrary. In fact, these were pretty important areas of disobedience or obedience for God's people. You see, this instruction to not intermarry was not based on some modern notion of like ethnic superiority or marrying your kind or something like that, Uh, nor was it uh, to say that something like ontologically happens to your soul when you marry a pagan, that like, oh, all of a sudden, your soul changed, and the dynamic's totally different now. It's not to suggest anything strange like that, but understand that it was prohibited by God's law because of what it did to his people. You see, what God knew in his providence when he gave this law, gave this instruction not to intermarry with the pagans, he understood that it led to the spiritual regression of his people. If you just pause and read the Old Testament, you will see that every time you played with fire, you got burned in this way. Every time people made covenants and marriage relationships with people that were not followers of Yahweh, it led to death. It was a sin that gave birth to death among them. 
And so it was meant to keep them in the good way, to keep them in the law of God, to make keepers of his covenants and not people who were tempted to falter. But then the second command of keeping the Sabbath, like understand that this keeping of the Sabbath, Sabbath, this rhythm that God's people had that was so familiar to them, uh, had been something that was forsaken during the exile. Uh, so not only were they a cultural, ethnic minority in the, in the Persian Empire, right? Not only were they maybe challenged or maybe it was difficult for them to practice the Sabbath, uh, but understand in the poor spiritual state that many of these people were in, uh, the Sabbath keeping was just not a priority. But this Sabbath, it required sacrifice and planning and intentionality. It was a consistent rhythm that God placed into the lives of his people to remind them of their gracious covenant with him and their identity as his people. This instruction mattered. God wasn't just wagging his finger and said, I told you, don't go pick up your Amazon packages on Saturday, and you did it anyway. I told you, don't do this on Saturday, and you did it anyway. That wasn't anything to it. it was, there was a good, good law that, that produced spiritual flourishing among a people that had been forsaken along with the rest of God's law. And so, again, understand that these aspects of this commitment to holiness are not a comprehensive list and describe what a holy life is. If you leave here today and you say, well, I just need to keep a Sabbath and make sure I don't marry a pagan, and then God's going to say, good job. Uh, That's not like an entire view of what holiness is. And again, it may not be issues that are near or relevant to our lives, but understand a commitment to holiness is to address a gap between our way of life and the holiness of God. That's what these people did. Maybe I just ask you to consider what does that look like in your life? might not look like a temptation to intermarry with pagans. It might not look like a forsaking of the Sabbath or anything like that. But maybe it's a love of money that you allow to creep into your heart to carve out a place in your life. Maybe for you it's an anger that you just can't seem to shake. A frustration with a people or a situation of bitterness that has set in cold in your soul. Maybe for you that's that's something sinister. Like there are, there are sins that you are acting on presently that have a grip on your life and feel dark and heavy in your life right now. I just want to ask you to consider, to be open before the Lord. I think the graciousness of his covenant invites us to this radical honesty, invites us to this openness before him. Not to shy away as we did in the garden in our shame when we see our sin, but to come before him, honest about our sin, open about where we fall short open about the gap in our holiness, open about where we have fallen short of the way of life that God has called us to, and by his grace, see that there is a good way before us. See that the commands of God are not things meant to compound the shame or guilt or grief in your life, but to call you to a better way, to call you to a way of flourishing. So consider as we see these things, what would it look like for me in my life to make a commitment to holiness? What would it look like for me in my life to settle this for yourself now? That this is who I am and this is how I will live. This is what I will pursue. Again, remember that the decisions you make right now, the temptations you answer, the sin that you allow to creep into your heart and into your life right now matter. They matter so much. 
our commitment determines whether we will flourish or be fruitless. So at this precipice, as we see the sin in our life, as we see this gap in our holiness, don't just ignore it and say that's an issue for later. Settle this for yourself now, that this is the way of life God has called me to, and seek repentance at life in him. Second aspect of their commitment was a commitment to generosity. So everybody pull out your wallets. Uh, Just kidding. But in verse 32, we see that each person uh, was obligated to give a third of a shekel uh, for the service of the house of God. Now, what's interesting is that this wasn't just a recap of the instruction to tithe, even though we see like components of that kind of mixed throughout the rest of the language here. Uh, it wasn't just a component to tithe. It was recognizing, hey, here's your situation. This is the financial uh, playing field that we are working with. This is what it would look like for you to give generously and, 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 and sacrificially for the service of the house of God. And that language might seem like flowery and like make this question, what does that really mean? But really what we see in the following verses as we go down through verse 39 is that really it was meant to just fund the ministry of the temple and its priests, right? So people were bringing their tithes, bringing up their storehouse, the, the oil and the wine and all of these things, things that were needed for various festivals and sacrifices, things that uh, were, were needed for these things, the people were called to give generously towards that thing. And I think that even though what we see in verses 30 through 39 is kind of a long, detailed description of what this, uh, what this commitment entailed, I don't think that that is necessarily the point, is necessarily the specifics of what they did, but rather what their giving meant. Right? We see in verse, verses 32 through 39 this repeated refrain that they are to bring the first or their first fruits of what they had. And what that means is not necessarily that they were to bring the first crops that they produced, bring the first oil that they purchased from the market, uh, bring the first of the money, you know, first in, first out, or something like that. It's not some accounting method for your budgeting or something like that. No, what this meant was that they were supposed to bring their best. To bring the first was to bring the best. And what this commitment entailed was to prioritize disciplined, abundant giving. To settle for myself now, before the money hits the bank account, before the grain hits the silo, I think that's right, before the, store, before the goods hit the storehouse, I'm going to settle for myself now that I am to bring my best to God, bring my best to the service of the house of God. And I think that this instruction, this commitment, again, as is the theme here, is not arbitrary, Right? This biblical instruction or any biblical instruction that you see about money and about giving seems to be more concerned with what happens in our own heart than what happens with our money. Right? The point isn't like, hey, uh, we need a new kids ministry curriculum because somebody paid for that. The point isn't, hey, we're renovating a bathroom. Both of those are things that we did recently. Uh, The point isn't necessarily what that money was or what it was to be used for, but I think the pattern and theme that we see in this instruction about giving and several others in Scripture is that they seem to be more concerned about what happens in our hearts when we give than what happens with the money that we gave. You see, giving is more about obedience to the Lord than making wise investments in some cause. It's more about the transformation of our own inner life than whatever impact it might have on the exterior. 
And I think that this is a good thing, a good provision that God has called us to. Uh, as, one, as one saint said, the last thing to be converted in a man's life is often his pocketbook, right? This is a thing that, that we hold dear. And, and often when we talk about money, especially right now, maybe that raises a, some degree of guilt or shame or, or frustration or, or whatever for you. Maybe that just bubbles up this insecurity or discomfort or something like that. And, and that's, that's completely understandable. When we think about God's law that commands us to, to give generously, I'm not necessarily like a tithe law kind of guy or something like that, and say, well, you must, 10%, show me your, some of your income t- statement or something like that. I don't think that that's necessarily the point of the exercise, but I think as we think about uh, what it means to give generously, I think it pricks up against something in our soul that longs for comfort, longs for security, something that we base our identity in. Often it's kind of a prevailing issue that weaves together a lot of different sin issues and patterns in our life, and all of that happens with our money. And that's why it's a good thing that God's law calls us to be generous givers. It is a good thing for you that God calls you to give it away. It is good for you. It's no secret that our world is completely inoculated by a greed and love for money. You will drive home today and pass billboard after billboard saying that you need this and you need that. You will drive past houses that are more impressive than your own. See cars at the stop sign that are, more, that are better than your own. You will want these things and desire these things. You will desire to see this number in your bank account instead of that bank account for what that means about your security and protection for what might happen in your future. There are so many things that become wrapped up into this idea of money that it's no... It's no wonder that our world is in this stranglehold of greed and love of money. And I think we need to be aware, if this is the cultural water that we swim in, how has that infiltrated God's church? How has this love of money infiltrated God's people and gone by the name of wise stewardship? How often has this love of money infiltrated God's church and gone under the moniker of building up wealth so that you can be a generous giver? All of these things are relevant and important for us. And that, what that doesn't mean is that money on its own, by its nature, is, is an evil. It isn't. That isn't the lesson that we should learn. There are people of great wealth who are faithful and love God, and money has not changed their heart. But understand that for every single person, no matter who you are, money does affect you at every level. It matters for our souls what we do with it and also what it does to us. It matters for our souls what we do with our money and what it does for us. It is not, again, arbitrary that in Matthew chapter 19, I think that people see Jesus, and and especially people who may be of this political persuasion or want to kind of see this, uh, this kind of idea in Jesus, they say, look at the way that Jesus just railed against all of these people that were wealthy. Right? We need to be these people who radically give away everything to the poor, give away all of these things. We need to become impoverished ourselves. We See, Jesus was about a social revolution and about taking money away from the powerful and giving it to the weak. And I don't think that that really captures the essence of Jesus' teaching about money. Really, the instruction that Jesus gives about money was centered more on our own souls and how it produced flourishing or fruitlessness in us and how it brought life versus death in us. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 24, he says famously that it is easier 
for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's not saying that, well, the wealthy are terrible people. He's not saying that the problem is that you've accumulated money and that's going to poison you. That's going to poison your heart and poison your life. Instead, Jesus meant to call attention for not only what we do with our money, but how it changes us. And this instruction was meant to liberate us of our fear, liberate us of our anxiety, liberate us of all of these things that lead to and feed into a love of money and call us to a better way. Call us to a life of radical generosity. Call us to not place wealth on a pedestal and seek it with everything we have, even though every single one of our lives to this point was formatted in that way. But to instead see that not only is this maybe neutral at best, but could harm me at worst. And so he calls us to a liberation with how we think about money. And so again, see that his commands to generosity are not arbitrary. God's command to generosity and this commitment of this people here to give generously was a way to graciously shepherd their souls towards a commitment that ultimately formed them. God doesn't need our money, but he wants to transform your heart. And that's true about our giving, to pursue a way of flourishing rather than a fruitless love of money. And the third and final aspect is this, kind of summing up something that I think is woven between the lines of everything we see here is a commitment to community. So I think, like I said, playing out in the background of of this chapter, and especially in verses 1 through 27, as we see this list, understand that this is a reflection on how God's people thought collectively rather than individualistically. This passage uses plural we and our 20 times and uses I Anybody want to guess? Zero. The point to see here is that there is a shape and pattern to what we see all across Scripture, to the relationship of God's people, to the relationship that God has with us as well. You see, this shared commitment to something implies a commitment to one another. If we are going to share in a commitment together, it implies also a lateral commitment to one another. You see, the writing the document, that was the something. That was the thing that they put pen to paper and said, this is what we are committing ourselves to. And if that's true, we can think of the seals or the signatures as the one another that they were going to keep it with. It's not a mistake. Lists are never arbitrary. It's not just your grandma ranting about somebody's grandma and somebody's grandpa and all these people that you've never met or something like that, talking about the family tree. No, these lists matter. And this list is meant to capture that this was a defined people in a defined place, in a defined time, that we're not only called to God, but called to one another. You see, this list, this document that they created with their seals, was a way of identifying their people and their purpose. And and what this commitment did is it allowed them to work this ultimate commitment to God into every sphere of life. It reached the government. It it reached the civil law. It reached the activity of the temple and the priests. And it reached down into every single home because people were in it together. It was meant to impact and shape every sphere of life. And again, like I said just a moment ago, it's no mistake that God weaves this collective spirit, this collective mindset into every teaching and instruction about his people. Togetherness is the theme of the life of God's people. Whether it is 
in obeying and upkeeping the civil law of the Old Testament or in the 50 plus one another commandments of the New Testament, understand that God's design for us is plural. It's a life lived collectively among a people, a specific people. Not to be a mist that kind of comes in and goes, weaves into this community or this church and out into this one, but to be a committed people with your name on the document. To know the names of the other people on the document. To know the people that you covenant with together. That's why we take church membership so seriously. Uh, We don't have a formal church membership at Redeemer because we are a six-month-old church, but it's something that we are actively pressing towards because we believe in defining who are the one and others that we are going to walk together with in this life. And again, these commandments are not arbitrary, but good for us, necessary for our soul. It is essential for our flourishing. You see, community keeps us in the way of God. Hebrews 3.12 says that be watchful for when an evil, unbelieving heart takes root in any of you, that we are to see one another and know one another's life intimately, that we might see sin in one another, that we might see temptation and call one another to a better way. We're called to build one another up, to meet us in our anxiety and in our stress and in our despair and to build one another up. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says we are to serve one another, Galatians 5 says, to meet one another's needs, to be present with one another, not just to be on the other end and ready to receive when someone asks, but to know when the need is there before they get a chance, to bear with one another, Colossians 3.13 says. And to belong to a people, Hebrews 10 says, that point us to greater faithfulness day after day to the way of God. You see, this commitment to community is not arbitrary. A commitment to community, a real practice of living in the plural together fosters a greater commitment to God. It it gives us an opportunity to lock arms with fellow Christians who are pointing us through the true and better way. And so in all of these things, we see this commitment to holiness, this commitment to generosity, this commitment to community that makes up uh, what was taking place among this people in this place and time in their lives based on their experience. And that's why I said it's not a comprehensive list. It's a representative one. These were areas of their life where commitment to God was needed for spiritual flourishing as a people. And I think by way of application this morning, I would just invite you to consider a couple of things about how you might think about this for your own life, in your own situation, in your own season, and in this church together. A couple of questions I just want you to think about. First, what does your commitment or commitments in life reveal about your direction? If you just take stock where you spend your time, what you spend your money on, what you love, what affections you fan into flame with your time, with your money, with your friends, with your life. Taking stock of every aspect of your life, where are those things headed? You see, this paradigm is all throughout Scripture. That to keep the covenant is blessing. To forsake it is curse. This paradigm can be repeated many other times. The way of wisdom is to walk in the way of flourishing. The way of foolishness is to walk in the way of sin and grief and death. Recognize, look at these things in your life. Take stock of your commitments. 
and really ask yourself, where are these things leading me? You see, the wisdom of this passage and the wisdom of this people was to see there is a way that leads to life and flourishing, and there is a way that leads to death. And we are going to commit ourselves to the way of life. So ask that. Where do your commitments reveal about your direction? And then second, ask yourself this. Where do you need to recover a commitment to the way of the Lord in your life? And this is where I would just ask you to consider specific areas of your heart, specific thoughts in your mind, specific patterns of behavior or relationships that you might have, and just honestly identify before the Lord in humility, this is the gap in my holiness. This is the gap between where I am and the life that you have called me to. Where do you need to recover a sense of commitment to the Lord in your life? And I said this at the beginning, we do this in the context of an incredible grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. You see, we are not compelled when God finds us out in our sin to run and hide in shame, to clothe ourselves in our nakedness. You see, the invitation of the gospel is an invitation to be laid bare before God, who sees and knows all things anyway. And although he sees and knows all things anyway, he knew your name, he knew who you were, he knew where you'd live, he knew what you'd do, he knew what you would think. Yet he was driven to the cross in love anyway. Romans says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Knowing where you are, knowing the struggle that you are in right now, knowing the doubts and fears and grief that you are experiencing in love, he went to the cross to die for your sins, to call you to himself, that you might experience life everlasting in him. So friends, this morning, don't be afraid to take stock. Don't be afraid to be honest. Don't be afraid to be vulnerable before the Lord. And we can do that because we do so in a context of radical grace, of love and affection and mercy. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread in a meal with his disciples and broke it, saying that this bread represents my body that would be broken for you. And the disciples look ahead and wonder uh, what it was that Jesus was talking about. But he was teaching them through this meal together uh, about his work that he would complete on the cross. And he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you, and took the cup of the covenant and said, this represents my blood that is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And he instructs his disciples, as often as you gather, to eat this meal and take this drink to remember the Lord's death until he comes again. And we see this instruction is vital for our lives to remember that, yes, while we can be honest about our sin, open about where our holiness falls short before the Lord, we do so in the context of a Savior who has, whose body, perfect body has been broken, whose perfect blood has been shed for us, that we are forgiven and clean and, and, and washed and made new in Him. And so as we take this meal, I just want to invite you just on this theme to really search your heart, to really ask God to reveal where your commitment falls short. And by his grace and by the power of the Spirit, lead you to the water. Lead you to life everlasting. I invite you to do that right now. In just a moment, uh, the elements are behind you. We'll go through the center aisle here. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you do not take this meal. Instead, the invitation is that you take Christ. This grace and mercy that we talk about this morning can be yours if you call upon him in faith. Come to him this morning. If you are a Christian, you can take a moment to reflect 
which I want to read a passage over you, and then I'll be silent. You take a moment to reflect, and when you are ready, you can take the elements behind you, and as you return to your seat, uh, we'll stand again once more for a song of worship. So if you wouldn't mind, just in silence, in a moment of reflection, I'm going to read Psalm 139, 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting.